Welcome to the Botsteeper Austrian American Podcast, produced by the Botsteeper Institute for Austrian American Studies. We feature lectures and interviews with experts examining the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the former lands of the Habsburg Empire. present experience about Vienna was uh, the First World War. Towards the end of the First World War, there was starvation. All I can remember, uh, the thing which made the most impression, was being hungry, being cold, because you had no shoes, you had no coats, you had nothing. My name is Adriana Lacona, and my guest is Dr. Michael Burry, editor of the Journal of Austrian American History and program officer here at the Botsteber Institute for Austrian American Studies. Today, we're going to discuss Clemens von Perquet, a remarkable Austrian with a multifaceted career, who, with the help of American relief organizations, directed one of the first and most successful humanitarian aid endeavors ever. After World War I, hundreds of thousands of children were saved from starvation by Perquet's innovative scientific approach and his relationships with the American Children's Relief Administration and the Rockefeller Foundation. Michael, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adriana. Would you mind starting out by sharing with us what sparked your interest in Perquet? Well, um, I'm working on First Republic Austria period after uh, the Habsburg government uh, collapsed and um, was looking at how the subsequent governments coped with um, all these new um, demands um, Austria was uh, greatly reduced in size, much weakened economically, also defeated uh, militarily. Uh, and just in this kind of um, crisis situation, I'm interested in how a country that's not even defined yet politically in the international context um, coped with the uh, with the new circumstances. And so that's um, sort of how I look at the first uh, Republic Austria and um, the people who um, came out of the monarchy um, with all the endowments they had, how they helped steer the course for the first Republic. So Perquet was one of these people then? Uh, yeah. I mean, Perquet uh, had a reputation before the First World War. And so he's a bridge figure, someone educated in the monarchy, all the advantages of of those traditions, that education, those connections, the networks. And then confronted um, after 1918 uh, with a completely um, new set of circumstances, both emergency crisis situation with food and um, health health crisis, but also political circumstances. Uh, you know, it made a big difference that uh, 
the old Habsburg structures and the sponsors and the uh, leaders were no longer in place. Interesting. Can you tell me about Perquet? What kind of situated him so interestingly? What what were his accomplishments, his achievements in particular? Sure. Um, so uh, Clemens von Perquet was a born in 1874 uh, to a very well-known family. His father uh, was Peter was in the Austrian Parliament, a member of the Liberal Landowners Party. His mother was uh, Pereira Arnstein, a very famous uh, Jewish family in Austria, going all the way back to Fanny von Arnstein. Um, his mother was a great-granddaughter of Fanny von Arnstein. And so he grew up with a you know, significant re- name recognition and also some of the expectations of, no- of nobility, even, uh, even around the turn of the uh, century. He went to the Theresianum in um, Vienna's fourth district. And there, I mean, other people who, who were there at the same time would be like Schumpeter, Josef, uh, uh, who would later become a minister, minister of the economy and uh, would teach at Harvard. So very privileged upbringing and started out as someone who, in a very um, noble, aristocratic fashion, studied theology. He studied theology in Innsbruck and then in, in Leuven, in Belgium. And it was only after that that uh, he turned to medicine. Turquet was a member of the medical elite through his discoveries, being able to identify this test for tuberculosis immediately thrust him into international into the international spotlight. And it was through um, ingenuity, as far as I can tell, that he he figured the, he figured this out. He was he had also made some breakthroughs in in serum testing and so forth. So he was well known, but he was he wasn't somebody who wanted to be a doctor his whole life. He started out in studying theology, and then only later fulfilled maybe self expectations in becoming a sort of physician. It strikes me as amazing that he started in a different direction, but yet achieved so much once he changed the direction of his career in in what seems a short time. Yeah. So I think a good way to think about Pierre Kay, fascinating personality. He's someone who recognized crisis situations and then applied his intelligence to them. Tuberculosis, of course, a scourge of 19th century Vienna, and partly because of the close housing um, and uh, cramped living quarters. And Perquet made a major medical advance in coming up with his skin test. Later, the, his innovations in nutrition were also grounded in that sense of just applying his intelligence to a crisis situation. And so here's Pierquet, very self, self-aware, self-conscious of, his, of himself as a person, definitely an elite through his name, through his discoveries. In 1911, he became uh, the director of the Children's Hospital in Vienna. So people knew who he was. And when the war broke out, he was put into a completely different situation. Before we get to yeah. the war breaking out, yeah. 
so he um, uh, so he achieved his renown with the the skin test, the tuberculosis yeah. uh, skin test, and that allows him to then um, you know go to these emerging uh, international conferences. And he goes to this international tuberculosis meeting in Washington, D.C., where he presents a paper and he meets William Welsh. Is that correct? Yeah. So Piquet's uh, notability for that came to him through his uh, discovery of the skin test for tuberculosis garnered him international attention. So everybody knew who he was. And he was invited to an important conference in Washington, D.C. in 1908. You know, scientific conferences had really taken off in the late 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th century, assembling international figures. Countries were learning from one another. And particularly in tuberculosis, the United States felt that there was something to learn from Europe in responding and to the public health situation. Piquet came to the, came to the conference, and in the section, um, section one, the leader was William Welch. William Welch, who uh, was well-placed at Johns Hopkins, the leading uh, American hospital at the time, and in that section on tuberculosis, 70% of the papers were from for, were foreign contributions. So, William Welch was someone who was open to the expertise of uh, scientists from abroad. He met Pirquet, and it was in 1908 as well that Welch offered Pirquet a professorship and uh, the opportunity to become the first pediatrician-in-chief of the Harriet Lane Home for Invalid Children at Johns Hopkins. So Pirquet took, took this position. He knew Welch from from these years at Johns Hopkins, Welch, of course, like many of the pre-war physicians and researchers, had studied in Germany. He studied in Vienna, which he called the mecca of uh, the American practitioners. And so he had a respect, an interest in Vienna. Piquet, very polished, of course, uh, internationally renowned. Um, was hired by by Welch just to, to stay, and he was only there for a short time, a little more than a year. Do you know why Perquet didn't stay at Johns Hopkins? The circumstances of his leaving aren't that clear. He was also invited to to work in Minnesota. There, in the biography, one of his students produced um, about Perquet. There's some documents about salary and contract negotiations. You know, Perquet did want to be paid after all, and uh, but it's not really clear why Perquet left. But he made these connections with people who knew Austria, who knew Vienna, respected Perquet and his work, and this. These connections mattered for the rest of uh, Piquet's life. Tell me how they mattered. What were the ramifications of these connections? So they mattered in getting jobs, first of all, in the, in the pre-war period, but they especially mattered after the war. William Welch, famous figure in American public health, there's a portrait of him, by famous by John Singer Sargent, with other uh, luminaries of Johns Hopkins. 
absolutely the pinnacle of of American medical of the American medical profession. And so Welch was well connected. He knew people who would become important at Rockef- at the Rockefeller Foundation after the First World War, people who would be administering relief to Europe starting in the war and continuing after the war. So Piquet really met the right person. And Piquet kept a picture of Welch in his office on horseback, a picture of Welch visiting China. That was his tribute to Welch, but also a way of, of saying, you know, this is the, this is the person who's made a difference for me. It's a sign of their, their relationship, such a positive relationship they had. Yeah, Welch could open doors for Pierre K. He gave him references so that when the uh, American Relief Administration came to Austria then after the war, uh, everybody knew who Pierre K was. And uh, Perquet had also, in the meantime, built a reputation for nutrition and nutritional science. And so Perquet benefited from those contacts. I mean, the other people at uh, Rockefeller had also studied in Vienna, also very respectful of the medical tradition in, in Austria. And when Perquet was identified as the leader for that tradition and the, the contact person, it sort of added a lot of value to him. Um, more than just his accomplishments, it was his reputation. It's the reputation of Austria and Austrian medicine that kind of catapulted him into this very pr- prominent position in the relief efforts in, in, in Austria, but also uh, in, in Europe to some extent. Even though World War I had disrupted so many pre-war relationships and alliances, Perquet manages to maintain these really solid relationships. Yeah. So let me take a step back. So what's the issue in Austria and in Germany and with the Central Powers? The issue in Austria during the First World War is that there's not enough food. Paul Weinling, a researcher in Cambridge said you could view the First World War as a giant nutritional experiment because what the Allies had done was cut off food supplies to through a naval blockade to the Central Powers. And that meant that they had to become self-sufficient. They had to manage the agriculture, the food supplies that they had on their own. Allies did it partly as a starvation um, as a as a means of war, but also they were worried about uh, things like fertilizer and other exports reaching um, Germany or Austria, things that could be used for weaponry or explosives. And so nutrition was the number one issue in Austria. And everyone was on their own. At, uh, you might think that, that the central power allies, Germany, Austria, Hungary being part of that, would would work together, not where food was concerned. So Germany had their own food policy. Austria had their own. And actually, Hungary being separate sort of stopped, stopped their agricultural supplies to Austria 
wanting to feed their own people. And so everybody was on their own. And so the challenge was to come up with ways to feed the population and keep them alive so they could fight. Piotr is someone who was you know, self-built to respond to crisis situations. And in this situation of hunger, he wasn't a nutrition expert, but he was somebody who could apply his intelligence to, to critical situation. And he started experimenting with, with uh, food, food supplies, nutrition, looking at, at physical condition of, of individuals during the war. And this was the second part of his success after the war, the first part being his connections with Welch and the contacts he'd made in the U.S. He spoke good English. Second part was that he had started to do work on nutrition. He was one of the few people who wasn't actually recruited into war. um, In a wartime, physicians are very important because to the military because they can take care, they can, you know, serve the soldiers. But uh, Piquet was released from that. His staff was uh, reduced, but he was able to do research at home on nutrition. So he was also one of the most important people in the country because where food's the number one issue, the person who can provide solutions to food shortages and nutrition deficiencies is the top of the top of the hill. Just nothing. How we survived, I'm still, uh, you know, sometimes I'm trying to think, uh, how do you survive going to bed hungry? How did he manage to stay, was he, was he apolitical? How did he manage to sort of uh, help Austria during this during the war without being, um, I don't know, for lack of better words, still after the war being friends with the Americans or the Allies? Sure. So physicians and scientists did have uh, a kind of free pass to some extent in terms of how they were viewed as uh, participating in the war or burdened by their wartime associations. Piquet did one better. He hadn't been in the war, so he wasn't involved in a in um, sort of patriotic uh, ramblings. He ha- he wasn't involved. Uh, like some of his colleagues in experiments on prisoners of war or also uh, those who claim shell shock. There were some of the physicians, Arnold Durig being one of them, uh, were head of military hospitals who were in charge of um, making sure that what, malingerers, people who didn't want to serve in the war were, were really unable to unfit to serve and some of the experiments that they did and ways that they encouraged people or motivated soldiers or men to to become active again were uh, unethical and so Perquet wasn't tainted with that another thing that's important uh, in Perquet's success in Austria is that he wasn't considered part of the old guard he wasn't German. Um, Germany came out of the war internationally in the eyes of uh, American Relief Administration, 
uh, eyes of uh, the American public, much more uh, responsible for the war than the Austrians. And uh, Piquet also was a beneficiary of this. He was able to preserve his independence as a physician, his credibility. He was Austrian. He hadn't been a great a great patriot. He, he had, uh, before the United States entered the war, written colleagues in the United States telling them that this was an important war, that the Russians were needed to be um, defeated that they were the real threat, and this was a battle for civilization, but he didn't go public with that. And he was he kept his head down, and he was also, as I say, a physician, and he, care, he cared for people. So this mattered after the war, and he, he was a suspect in the, eye of the eyes of the Americans or the Austrians. Tell me about his, the work he was doing with nutrition during the wartime. The crisis in Austria, Germany, and the Central Powers was food. Austria had, uh, and Austrians had less, fewer calories than um, the average German. And it was a matter of national importance. But of course, also in Germany, there's no question that everyone was suffering from lack of food uh, on the home front in, Aust- in the central powers, in, in, in Central Europe. Pirquet took on this challenge of how to keep people alive. He wasn't the only one. There were dozens of physicians experimenting with new kinds of, all kinds of options. One of them would be chewing your food longer to get more nutrition from the food. There were other foodstuffs that were explored as alternatives to existing food staples. So clover, saltbush, all kinds of plants were looked at for their nutritional value. And Piquet initially was interested in uh, sugar because the sugar beet was very plentiful. And he argued in 1915, published the scientific work that sugar is an underappreciated staple, that it's not as bad as is for health as is generally thought. And so he was put his early bets on sugar. He dropped that. And what he became interested in was a couple things. One, uh, really, the Perquet system that he developed is uh, what might be called a three, three-legged stool. On the first leg is a look at individuals and what we think of today as body mass index. And he came up with a measurement called the Pelidisi Index that evaluated the body mass of individuals and quantified it on a scale of with, with the average being or well-fed well being 100 or adequately fed 100 and the number 90 representing poor nutrition and going down from there. That was the first part. Second part was a nutritional measurement that quantified how how much and what kind of nutrition individuals needed. This was called NEM, nutritional equivalent of milk. And so Pirquet thought that milk was the ideal food because everyone had it at some point, including babies. And so the nutritional values in milk were the standard. And 
he came up with a dietary regimen based on the values of milk that would be the minimum that individuals would need. So this was the second part. And then the third part was a subjective examination of, of individuals that supplemented the, um, the body mass index. So it had to do with skin tension and things like this. So what per, the Perquet system of nutrition, what it produced was a way, a way of measuring the individual and assigning them a number, quantifying what individuals needed to eat, and then supplementing that with a subjective examination with the knowledge that uh, a scientific number wouldn't be adequate. This strikes me as probably quite a departure from how the nutritional state of someone had been looked at before. Well, Piquet's contribution here has to do with a couple of things. One is it replaced uh, subjective um, standards of, of satiety. Namely, does a person need to eat? Yes, because they're hungry. So the Pelidisi index eliminates that. Are you hungry? Well, you might be, but your body mass is not low enough that you're a priority. From the stand, and we're looking at this from the standpoint of the state. This is also a break with some other ideas about the calorie as a unit of energy that held sway, especially with Max Rubner in, in Germany. And so it was a different way of quantifying um, nutrition via the NEM as well. It, it, it is different. It's based on survival as well. And so it's quite a bit different from actually what came after Perquet in terms of, at least in terms of nutrition, which is a greater focus on vitamins and what exactly individuals are eating. This is purely a kind of existential minimum to keep the people uh, alive and is not concerned so much with, with health and well-being. How does Perquet, he's one man, how does he, he's developed this now system of nutrition. How does he then go and implement this? So Pierre had the opportunity following the war to re-engage with his American colleagues. American food relief had been established during the war, even before uh, the Americans became involved in 1917. Hoover, Herbert Hoover and his program had begun feeding people in Belgium. This was a, an expansion of uh, war relief and considered an acceptable way for the United States to be involved in the war through relief. This continued after 1918 in the fall when the Central Powers surrendered. Piquet had the contacts in Vienna. American Relief uh, Administration, the Hoover um, Organization, showed up and wanted to examine beginning feeding operations in in Austria, and as as they had done throughout uh, other as throughout other parts of Europe, what distinguishes Pierquet is his scientific feeding system, the the degree to which the American Relief uh, Administration invested him, invested in him. How did the Rockefeller Foundation then become involved? So here we are, following the war, November 1918, 
have the armistice already. The American Relief Administration is um, showing up in Vienna. We're trying to assess the situation. What is the social condition of the people? Um, what can be done? What can't be done? What's the level of our interest given the circumstances? And the people who were involved in the American Relief Administration, um, uh, Alonzo Taylor, uh, Claire Torrey, and others, uh, were directly connected to William Welch and by extension to the Rockefeller Foundation. Rockefeller Foundation, after the First World War, is becoming increasingly interested in public health, partly through Welch's initiatives. And so American Relief Administration shows up. They decide in January 1919 that they are going to start a pilot project for feeding in Austria using the Pirquet system. And that program begins in May 1919. I should say that Austria was ground zero for food relief operations in in Europe. Eglantine Jeb, the great British philanthropist, founder of Save the Children, the Quakers, a number of others were operating in Vienna already at the end of 1918, early 1919, because the situation was so dire. Now, all countries kind of push their own stories and their own narratives for their for their suffering. So it's not worth it to to try to compare who suffered more, but just that international attention was very focused on, on Vienna. By May 1919, there were 35 international state and international organizations operating in Vienna for for relief. From, from three continents. There were South American countries sending relief to, to Austria, um, North America. So this was an international kind of hotspot. And so it mattered that American, it mattered to, to the Americans that they get involved, that they get involved. How would you describe the relationship that the Rockefeller Foundation had with Perquet? How did it differ with the ways they may have interacted with other Central European countries. So, so Piquet had the connections with the, the Rockefeller Foundation and its uh, leadership. And Rockefeller Foundation was especially interested in Central Europe. And they had inc- remarkable program officers who were investigating ways that uh, the Rockefeller Foundation could jumpstart public health in Czechoslovakia, in Yugoslavia, and across and Poland, really across Central Europe. And Austria was a little bit different in this respect. It, it had become a small country, and so it could not, didn't have the infrastructure to become a big player in Central Europe again. And at the same time, it had this grand tradition so of, of medicine. So Rockefeller Foundation didn't initiate a large-scale public health program in Austria as they did in Yugoslavia, uh, Czechoslovakia, and elsewhere. But they supported Pierre K and his, and his children's hospital. Pierre K 
distributed funds that were allocated to medical schools within Austria and oversaw the distribution of foundation monies. Rockefeller Foundation was not interested in relief, unlike the uh, American Relief Administration. They weren't interested in philanthropy. Nevertheless, William Welch did talk them into making already in 1920 a $1 million grant, the last big relief grant the Rockefeller Rockefeller Foundation made. He talked them into giving that to Austria and partly partly through Pierre Kay. I should add that uh, there were other efforts in Austria besides Pierre Kay and other kinds of relief going on in Austria that the uh, American Relief Administration was just one of many players, but the but the largest one through the efforts of Pierre, of Pierre Kay and the, the sponsors. In thinking about Pierre Kay and the American Relief Administration and the post-war context, we should be realistic and think about what their objectives were. American Relief Administration and and the Americans themselves didn't want to feed a lot of uh, people they had just been at war with. There was a measure of sentimentality and interest in the United States, but the former enemies were not high on the list for people who, in many cases, had knew someone who died in the war. The soldiers were just coming home, uh, and the United States had problems of its own. That is one part of it. Second part of it is Pierre Kay had come up with a scientific system of measuring individuals and feeding them according to scientific principles. What's positive about that achievement, and even today is remarkable, is that what the Pelodizi number did and what the American Relief Administration tried to do was not look at ethnicity, at class background, at any individual characteristics of the people it fed, and these were almost exclusively children. So it's not true that only poor children were starving or working class. In many respects, in in Austria, it was the middle class that was hit harder because those were people working in office jobs. The, The Habsburg Empire, the whole network, let's just take uh, railroad workers as an example. There wasn't a need for that great of an infrastructure for the railroad anymore when Austria was the only country that was being served. An enormous number of layoffs, middle class people losing their jobs who were hungry. And whereas a worker, you could still go out and, and use your body and physical labor. I'm not downplaying you know, the social element here, but just want to emphasize that the middle class was also greatly impacted. Not as much sympathy, of course, with middle class people, but what the Pelodizzi number does is provides a universal index, doesn't look at any other, it abstracts the individual completely, 
And it's like, if your number is 86, then you have a better chance of being fed. And you can track the improvement in nutrition purely numerically. This was important to Pirquet because he was a, a data guy, a statistics person. He wanted to quantify information. This was important to the American Relief Administration because they could say, we're feeding only the people who really need to be fed and kept from, from dying, and we're feeding children. Pirquet, if you look at the reports of Pirquet and uh, the work of the American Relief Administration, he was a general commissioner for Austria and had enormous authority over the program. If you look at the reports, it's a lot of statistics. It's a lot of these Peladisi numbers and charts and, and, and numbers that what we might think of today as the humanitarian dimension is not as foregrounded with Pirquet. He was really interested. He wanted something out of it, which was the data. He wanted to look at the results of the scientific feeding program. If you look at other feeding efforts, those would be more humanitarian, focused on s stories about individual children and their, their plight and much more emotionally oriented than what the Pirquet system presented. Interesting. And I'm sure that appealed very much to the American organizations. Yeah, it was, I mean, the, the, the numbers that were collected of, uh, in the Pelodizi charts and the, the, the improvements were an, exer an early exercise in, in big data. And Pirquet hoped that he would be able to use that in other situations, other contexts outside Austria following the war. So he was going to transport his system uh, to, the, to the world and uh, become successful in a way he never could have been with only the, the uh, skin test for tuberculosis. And the American Relief Administration would be the so the conduit for that. After the war, in his in his memoirs, Herbert Hoover said, you know, we conducted our European feeding uh, operations according to scientific principles, where individuals were measured and only received the nutrition that they required. That wasn't quite true of all the feeding operations, but it was true of Pirquet. And Hoover's statement shows the importance that Pirquet had in the thinking of the American Relief Administration and how they viewed what they were doing and how they sold it to the public and how they sold it internally. This whole approach that Pirquet had and with the support of the American organizations would have seemed like a, a really win-win situation for Austria, was it? Did everyone buy into this approach? I don't think everyone uh, was completely happy with the American Relief Administration. So who are the winners and who are the losers? Well, the winners are, are first of all, Pirquet. And the people who worked with him, the kitchens that he supported, and the way 
the people who collected the data he wanted to collect. The people who collected the data the way he wanted them to collect it. You had the children had to go in for measurements. They had to provide some vital statistics about birth and background in order to even begin to be participate in the program. In his memoirs, the Dietrich Botsteber writes himself, and he was very middle class uh, and well-to-do, writes about being hungry. And he said that he could get food dough anytime he wanted by stopping at the public school that had a, a feeding program in the, after the war. He said he got sandwiches and hot cocoa. So that means that Botsteber didn't go to uh, the American Relief Administration kitchens. He wasn't a Perquet subject because if he were, he wouldn't have got hot cocoa. Perquet was very, was very interested in giving people only the minimum and that it also not be too tasty. It not sort of make people spoiled for eating things that were, I don't know, particularly appetizing. So those are the winners, the Pirquet people uh, and his group that oversaw these fu- these funds. Who were the losers in what was called the American uh, Relief Action? The losers were the local politicians, especially socialist politicians in Vienna. Why? Because it was one for one thing. It was called the American Relief Action and. But Austria was contributing greatly to it. They were contributing half of the the funds and supplies. Everyone saw it because it was called the American. Everyone saw it as an American action. And so they didn't get any credit for it. Hmm. They participated, but they didn't get credit. They also lost because this was seen as an outsider's providing support for the for the Viennese and there's a pre, and the Austrians and it was a prestige question. What do you mean? How was it so? So the socialist the Vienna socialist administration followed the Habsburg government essentially. And part of their claim to legitimacy was we are going to do more for the people and provide better health, better schools, a better future for Austrians. The Piquet system and the American Relief Administration preempted that. Piquet knew that very well. Numerous occasions, he threatened to walk out unless he had full control of the American Relief Administration money and also the Austrian match. So he was running a mini state, a mini relief operation that had enormous funds within existing the existing state administration and so the losers would be the especially the the socials who didn't get credit for what they were doing were being preempted in their plans for what they wanted to do and f- didn't really agree with the Pirquet system in principle and by that i mean socialists came to power following the Habsburg government. And one of their main arguments was, we want to give individuals more responsibility. And the responsibility that they were never given under the old system. We want to give people a chance to be educated and show what they can do. And for the socialists, what the Perquet system did, or at least they argued that it did, 
was made individuals de- too dependent on external sources of support. So the socialists like Julius Tandler always argued in connection with tuberculosis, for example, that the family should be more important in fighting tuberculosis because what about the father who had tuberculosis and didn't take steps not to give it to his children and was too dependent on alcohol, for example. This is the person that needed to become more responsible in the post-war period, and the socialists stood for that. Well, the Pirquet system basically said if the kids are hungry enough, or if the kids have the Pelodisi number, they can keep getting the food regardless. The responsibility, the moral component is not there. And so it was a loss for the that was not a win-win for the socialists because they lost the political argument, they weren't showing their leadership, and they lost the moral argument about making the individual, their voter, more responsible and giving them the chance to show what they could do that the Habsburgs would never let them show. Interesting. This must have made uh, enemies for Perquet. Yeah, uh, Pirquet uh, was a mortal enemy of of, of Tandler. Uh, this was really came down to a question of Pirquet versus Tandler, and uh, Tandler was the uh, public health secretary for uh, Vienna. And uh, as long as the um, situation was a was one in crisis. Pirquet had the upper hand, but as things started to stabilize in 19, late 1920, early 21, the socialists put pressure on the, um, on the government, state country government, to um, transition from American, the American Relief Administration feeding program to a socialist-led one. And this represented the sort of the end of, of Pirquet's reign in uh, Vienna. What happened afterwards to Pirquet? Pirquet was a towering figure in Vienna. He had international ambitions. And so though he was in conflict with Tandler, he also had opportunities to uh, present himself elsewhere. One of the places he presented himself was in the United States. And he was invited to lecture at Harvard and at Yale in um, 1921, 1922. He went on a lecture tour. He was, for example, uh, in Philadelphia in January of 1922 um, at the College of Physicians, where he talked about the work of the American Relief Administration in Vienna. He was an international figure. And so when one thinks about the connections with Austria and the United States immediately after the war, well, what kind of Austrians would you would you see in the United States in a city like, like Philadelphia? Oh, you would see Clemens Perquet. You might see Fritz Kreisler, the Austrian uh, violinist, who also did his part for raising money for Austrian relief. So if you had an Aust- if you had status, international name recognition, you would be touring the United States trying to uh, raise money for 
um, Austrian relief. Other people did it as well. Uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, the philosopher, his sister was in the United States uh, raising money. So there were many people, many organizations involved in, in raising money. And after the war, that was one kind of way out, additional opportunity for for Pierquet. Pierquet exited from his American Relief Administration work in Vienna was through his lecture series in the United States. Socialists had the upper hand. He was on his way out. Had there been a League of Nations then, could Sir Edward Grey have summoned into conference the authoritative representatives of the great civilized powers and through them have focused the intelligence and the conscience of mankind on the Austrio-Serbian quarrel, there would have been gained the priceless moment of meditation which would have enabled the heady currents of racial and national passion to be allayed. Today there would be in all the devastated countries of the world that calm progress which a continuation of peaceful civilization ensures. Another opportunity came in 1926 when he was invited to participate in the League of Nations Health Organization. Leader of the health organization was Ludwig Reichmann, a figure who made his name in Poland in the post-war, also as a public health figure and also supported by Rockefeller. Rockefeller Foundation was a major player in supporting the health organization at the League of Nations, uh, providing up to 40% something of its budget. And they were very interested in using the League of Nations to conduct public health work that had begun after the war. Pierre Kay was invited to serve on the uh, on a report that was being produced by the uh, health organization, the Infant Mortality Report. That report involved looking at infant mortality in an, across a number of countries, coming up with standards for determining cause of death and normalizing statistics in other ways. Pierre Kay was a big name on the, on the panel. And what he hoped, at least as far as I can tell, is he hoped to reinstitute some of the findings from his per K system of nutrition and apply them to infant mortality at the at the international level. So he wanted, for example, to use the mortality report to do a Pelodisi index reading of children and build that into the report. Ultimately, he didn't succeed in that uh, in that effort. And he served on the committee, worked with Reichman and some other individuals who had made their name in public health, like Perquet had in the post-war period. And he went on some lecture tours and traveled using League of Nations money. But that second phase where he would take the precarious system of nutrition that he had developed in Vienna and been so successful with, the next step never really happened. And so Pirquet kind of ends his career 
with the League of Nations. So, Piquet is an interesting figure. I here's someone who enormously successful at a young age with the uh, tuberculosis test. If you can imagine, became still more famous through his, especially in Austria, where he was considered a presidential ca- candidate for president. Became even more famous in his home country. Went to the League of Nations. And it was a Tremendous burden, no doubt, you know, to be, have such expectations to have been so successful. And after he had not fulfilled himself at the, at the League of Nations, in, in some sense, it's a riddle. No one knows. Where do you go after you top out, after you hit the ceiling at the League of Nations? Well, in Piquet's case, very sort of enigmatic figure very proud, not a person who compromised in his research, in his work as an administrator with the ARA, walked away from really any more involvement in Vienna um, in the in the 20s in terms of scientific leadership and went to the League of Nations. Birkay, an enigmatic figure by all accounts, also in the choice of his wife, although who knows, ended up leaving the League of Nations. He handed off his work to his assistants, Edmund Nobel, who, who finished the mortality, infant mortality report. And Piquet, still well-known, traveled, gave lectures. Already in 1926, there were reports that he had fallen out of a window while attending a conference in Prague, but he only broke an arm or was only slightly injured. Well, he ended up committing suicide in, along with his wife in, in 1929, uh, to the shock of everyone. First class funeral attended by the, by the president, League of Nations, sent representatives, funds set up, but that was the end. Uh, Piquet, um, in my view, tremendous achievements, visionary, idiosyncratic, but also a kind of a, mis- a mystery. And that was that has been his his legacy. Who knows? Had he lived into the 30s, the League of Nations became more interested in nutrition, and uh, he might have had a, a, a further career there. To some extent, his achievements were overshadowed by relief and humanitarian projects after the Second World War. So he's not particularly well known. But even after the war, on the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of his death, the workers' newspaper in Vienna uh, wrote a tribute to him saying that many of us uh, owe our lives to him. And so I think that people knew that in Vienna. It's a part of the history that's somewhat eclipsed um, and uh, also compounded by the mystery of, uh, of his end. 
That sounds like it's such an unfortunate end to someone who still seemed capable of contributing so much and, and had in his lifetime. I recognize that the TB skin test um, that still bears his name is still used. Uh, are there other aspects of Perquet's legacy today? He seemed to be at such of a, a, a crossroads of internationalized public health and the, the rise of data and statistics and but yeah I Pierquet's legacy I think he was commemorated on a European Union coin I believe and some of his friends contributed to a bust that's uh, in Vienna in the courtyard at the university I think that when you look at the Pierquet system of nutrition, the three parts, the Pevodisi index, the, the NEM, nutritional equivalent of milk, and the, the skin test, the one that's left and that we still work with today would be something like Pevodisi. We still have body mass index where we try to assess individuals' health condition, nutritional state uh, by assigning a number or a value to it. That's probably the legacy of Pierquet. But, you know, as, as with all science, contrast to, you know, the humanities, there is a kind of a progression in terms of the, the knowledge. And I think that another legacy would be the ongoing attempt to define humanitarian relief in a way that is not prejudiced or influenced by external factors, but only by the individual need. And Perquet came up with a way through the Pelodizi Index of quantifying that. And I think that that's still an ideal to find, to be able to assess what's needed and to provide that relief. And if it's not achieved, it's certainly an ideal among many people. And to think he was able to achieve such an ideal, even after the war, setting aside political partisanship and so many other issues that he must have faced. Yeah, I think that the Pirquet legacy would be that sort of universalistic approach to the individual, especially the child, that the way that the child was seen after the First World War was as the cipher or the object of absolute need, detached from social conditions, helpless. And the view of the child after the Second World War in the declarations of the United Nations altered a little bit to emphasize the importance of the family and context. And that way of looking at individuals as detached from circumstances and is probably another legacy of Pirquet, especially children. I think the transatlantic legacy of Pirquet still has some life in it in this way. The American Relief Administration effort led by Pirquet and the work that the American Relief Administration did in Europe has been criticized as an American effort to sell grain 
and to sell anti-communism and keep governments intact is a grand geopolitical strategy. I think we have to say that. But what I think is still alive in in the legacy with the American Relief Administration, MPRK, is something that also took place after the Second World War with the Marshall Plan, is the idea that the better angels in the American approach can have something to contribute to Europe that helps Europe to transform itself. And when people cite what the United States' relationship to Europe could be, they always come back to the Marshall Plan, to the American Relief Administration. And this is a kind of ideal that is hard to make go away. And I think you even see that in Europe with the European Union saying things today like, we need a Marshall Plan for the, for the Balkans. We need a Marshall Plan to restart economies in the face of public health crises. And this ideal of transnational cooperation, partly shaped by self-interest, is an ideal that's hard to make go away. And this is the legacy of, of Pirquet, not only transatlantically, but also, I think, within Europe as an ideal of what cooperation among states can do for the people who live there. And that concludes our podcast for today. Many thanks to Dr. Michael Burry for taking the time to talk about Clemens von Perquet. This podcast was produced by Dr. Michael Burry, Elizabeth Leitzel, and myself. Our theme music is Hungarian Dance by the Underscore Orchestra. I'm Adriana Lacona. Thanks for listening. The Botsteber Austrian-American Podcast is produced by the Botsteber Institute for Austrian-American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botsteberbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.